Hi everyone, thank you for joining us this month for the Step Outside podcast. My guest this month is Dawson Rader. He is a master's student in wildlife and fishery science here at the School of Natural Resources. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. And you're here to talk to me today about your research on the Swainson's warblers. Yeah, Yeah. I'm really excited to share some of the work we're doing here in East Tennessee. And what made you want to research this bird species specifically? Yeah, the the Swainson's warblers are really interesting species um, to me. Um, It kind of started uh, a few summers back during some field work where we really kind of discovered a large population um, in the southern Appalachian Mountains. So we were finding more in the southern Appalachians than we really expected to, and it opened up the door to a lot of really interesting questions for us as to why they're here and what they're using while they're here during the breeding season. You mentioned that there's not a current published study from Tennessee. Yeah, that that's right. You know, there are there have been a few maybe documented cases of the Swainson's warblers, but most of these publications are just talking about maybe one instance of them finding a nesting pair. But as far as what we're doing, the scale at which we're doing it, um, no, no one's really focused on the Swainson's warbler as a whole across the landscape. So looking at those big kind of questions, which we're hoping to get out of how much habitat is available, how many of them are there in the state, things like that. And speaking of habitat, have you noticed anything about the type of habitats they're selecting? Yeah, so, you know, the only thing I have to report on so far would be just what I've experienced. But I always try to tell people that if you want to find a Swainson's warbler, you just go to where... You go to a spot where you look at it and you say, well, I definitely don't want to go in there. And that, that's where these birds are hanging out. So they hang out in very extremely dense vegetation. So uh, for people that are familiar with the Appalachian Mountains, we're talking about really thick rhododendron thickets. But they're also using other things as well. They'll, they're, oh, we find them in stands where... There's regenerating pine, and the pine is really thick. You know, you essentially shouldn't be able to walk through it without something touching you at all times, a branch or a twig. We've, we also find them along, you know, maybe watersides have stands of invasive plants sometimes, things like uh, Chinese privet and autumn olive and things like that. They'll use those places as well. So... In general, what what we're observing isn't as much one specific habitat type, but several, but they all share this um, characteristic of being incredibly dense vegetatively. What you sent me about your research, you mentioned how there are other states that have done studies, but those are about coastal populations. How do those kind of differ? Yeah, so the Swainson's warbler is really interesting in its, I guess, overall biology. Um, the, the bird breeds in the southeastern United States. So it breeds in 
I think it's something like 13 or 14 different states total, uh, Tennessee being one of those. But a lot of those states are, yeah, what we call the coastal plains population. So these birds are the birds in Louisiana and South Carolina and even West Virginia. Those birds are a lot more coastal plains. And then we kind of see an absence of the species in the um, Piedmont area that separates the coastal plains and the Appalachian Mountains. And then all of a sudden they start appearing again in the southern Appalachians and they go northern through the Appalachian mountain chain. So it's kind of interesting when we think about it um, from that perspective, right? Because along the coastal plain, they're using a lot of swamplands. So I already mentioned the vegetation types we have here, but there, you know, they were originally described as a cane break obligatory species. So when they were originally discovered, people thought that they had to have large tracts of intact cane. But what we've seen is that, you know, a lot of those cane breaks have since been destroyed and the Swainson's warbler is still apparently stable population-wise. So there has to be more to it than that. But nonetheless, you know, the plant communities on the coastal plains are a lot different than what we have here. Um, and there's no, there's no debating that. So it's difficult to say if a lot of the studies that have been done in Texas and Louisiana and Arkansas, it's hard to say that those would directly translate to us just because Tennessee is so different and the ecology here is so different. So essentially, part of our work um, has to be going through and kind of redoing those studies for this area to make sure that every... And it might be the case that everything translates well, but we, we have to have a way to make sure that the data and what they found on the coastal plains is the same here. Because it's not impossible that we have birds that are attracted to the southern Appalachians for a different reason. Or we might find a different driving factor here of why they come and occupy these places. Do the birds differ a whole lot in those different locations? No, they don't. Um, there, there has been some debate throughout history. When they first discovered them in the Appalachians, they labeled it as a subspecies. Um, but there have been studies since then that have combined them into the same uh, species again, and there's no subspecies delineation. Um, a lot of the older documentation will talk about that some of the birds in the coastal population are more yellowish in color and some of the ones in the Appalachians are more white but um, just speaking from experience myself having caught some of the birds in the Appalachian had them in hands and also having seen hundreds of them the, the birds vary widely across the Appalachian so some of them being very white on the breast and some of them are you know almost bright yellow so we're seeing a lot of variation here within our population, and from what I understand from my peers doing research on the coastal populations, they see the same thing. 
Um, and we also have been able to compare things like body weights between the two populations um, and different morphometric traits like how large their bills are, how long their wings are, the things that usually separate things like subspecies. And we've really seen no major differences with the... There may be a slight possibility that the ones in the Appalachians tend to average a little bit higher in body weight. But really, um, there's nothing to suggest that they're different really in any way. Um, and I might be mistaken, but I think there's been genetic studies, and I know that there's been studies looking at the um, feather color and things like that using museum specimens that have shown no difference. So it's just interesting that they're, you know, split up like they are into different populations, but they still seem biologically the same. Do you think it might be possible that the reason they're just kind of scattered is because it sounds like the habitats that you describe, you kind of find out in the forest or in the woods. Do you think maybe because of the increase in human population that could have impacted why they're so scattered? I don't really know. There's there's a lot unknown about the Swainson's warbler itself. So it was, in my opinion, well, in a lot of people's opinion, it's a very understudied species. So we have a problem, you know, where... No one was paying attention to this species really during the times when humans were expanding the fastest. Well, I guess technically we're expanding the fastest now. But, you know, in these periods of great development and when we had things like massive deforestation across the landscape, uh, landscape this, this bird wasn't really being followed. In fact, history lost it for about 50 years and then just rediscovered it pretty much as soon as they went to look for it. So it's it's really difficult to say. Um, but one thing I will say about the Swainson's Warbler and, you know, human activity and human expansion is that, interestingly enough, what we, we, we started thinking they were a specialist species, which I mentioned earlier with the cane breaks, but we're finding that in some cases they adapt quite well to human augmented environments, meaning um, the things like the invasive privet and auto olive stands, and also they've been seen further south utilizing um, monotypic pine plantations, which is something that's pretty crazy because these pine plantations in general are maybe not technically, but they're pretty much biological deserts. I mean, you have very few key species that can use these pine plantations. Things like the brown-headed nuthatch and the pine warbler come to mind. But besides that, and maybe the most general of species, you don't see anything in there, but they're finding that Swainson's warblers have learned how to use these environments and are colonizing these pine plantations at high rates. So, um, you know, there's a lot to be said about the Swainson's Warbler and human activity and how it's going to 
ebb and flow with that. And, you know, it's also interesting to think about Tennessee forests in the same way. You know, the Swainson's Warbler is currently in the Appalachian Mountains. Well, as a lot of us here at School of Natural Resources know, the Appalachian Mountains have been, you know, really extensively logged throughout history. And in general, there was no regard into how those forests were going to regenerate. There were no, I don't don't want to say no, but if there was any, there was very little good forestry practices going on during those time periods of this really um, exploitive logging that they did. So, you know, these forests, forests very likely regenerated in a different way than what is natural and what we're seeing is Swainson's warblers using them now with very few records of them using it before. So the question would be is the has in a certain sense has irresponsible forestry led to a, a potential boom of this species, you know. Because if things like rhododendron are on a land, on the landscape now in a greater amount than they used to be when these were old growth Appalachian forests, you know, there's no, I think there's no reason we shouldn't think there, there's a possibility that things like the Swainson's warbler and other species that use um, rhododendron are going to be more prevalent. So, I guess, just to sum it all up, I, I have no idea, and I don't think anyone has a perfect idea, how human expansion has affected the Swainson's warbler. There's just a lack of data along with evidence that they can handle it to a certain extent. I believe you said you started this project, was it in 2021? Yes, pretty much. So in 2020 was the year um, I was out on a different project and we found a high number of Swainson's warblers, which was a focal species for that project, but just that project was just based on detecting birds over a long period of time. So when we found a lot of them, um, it sparked questions. And in 2021, um, I returned to the same area and we started doing more focused um, work towards the Swainson's Warbler. So we started going out independently and looking for this specific specific bird outside of the bounds of our usual surveying. So we really wanted to get to the idea of, okay, if we wanted to do a project, is it possible? How many can we find? And that's the year um, uh, we also collaborated with LSU, um, a good friend of mine down there, uh, Garrett Ryan, was doing a uh, doing his PhD research on the migration um, on the migration of the Swainson's warbler. So what he wanted to look at was where are the Appalachian birds, for example, migrating in comparison to where maybe birds from Mississippi are migrating to. So he asked, he reached out to collaborate with us uh, to catch some birds and to harness them with geolocator tags which allow us to track the birds um, 
the tricky part about them is we so we harnessed those birds in 2021 and then we had to come back in 2022 and catch those same birds to get the harnesses back because those harnesses don't communicate externally so you have to literally get the tag back physically which is tricky we, we also deployed other uh, tag types like modus tags which is a big uh, high board right now these modus tags do do communicate externally but they have to fly by specific towers so those birds unfortunately didn't fly by those towers and we didn't get information but if we did see those birds we just went ahead and caught them and took the tags back off of them because um, a lot of them have a limited battery life anyway kind of back to subject but that year we started doing some specific Swainson's Warbler surveys and also started doing some vegetation work. And then jump forward to 2022, we did a little bit of recapturing those birds that we caught in 2021. And that was my first kind of real field season as a grad student where we really had our vegetation protocol down. So we did a lot of our surveying and vegetation sampling and then in 2023, we've done the same for a second field season, which, again, just our specific sampling and then vegetation work is mostly what we do. Is there a certain uh, timeline for the field season? The Swainson's Warbler is only here for part of the year. Um, so it's, it's a migratory species. So it arrives here and it breeds here during the summer. And then come around about mid-September the bird leaves and our birds from Tennessee actually migrate down to Cuba so uh, and again that's all been revealed through my friend's study that we helped with so that's pretty cool. May is kind of the start point for our field season um, it can vary a little bit just based on when we get done here at school but um, that's when we start and we pretty much work May and June are when the birds are really singing. So that's our peak for the year and pretty much all the bird species that breed here. If you want to go out and detect them, that's when you need to be doing it. It's a thing, scientifically, a standardization thing. But also, you know, our goal was to find as many of these birds as possible. So we had our established survey routes and essentially we needed to have them all done before July. Because when July rolls around, some bird species start to kind of get a little bit quieter in general. They're not defending their territory as hard. And in all likelihood, they've already mated for the season. So they're not trying to attract mates anymore either. Swainson's warbler does tend to sing a little bit longer. But still, we try to get all of our surveying to locate the birds done before July. And then in July, it's really unfortunate timing for me and any field technicians that are helping me, but that's when we go out and do our vegetation surveying. So we've already located where we need to go based on the surveying period, and then we actually go out and survey those areas. And in the South Cherokee, it's, it can be pretty terrible, just heat-wise and mm -hmm rain-wise and everything else. But. Oh yeah, I can imagine. 
Um, and then once you get into the fall, are you just um, reviewing all that data that you collected? I haven't really got into the data analysis yet, but it's figuring out what we're going to look at and how we're going to analyze that data. So the goal now is, because we have a, we have a particularly large data set for, for what we've done. There's larger data sets out there, but when we measure our vegetation uh, at plots, we really it's really extensive so um i mean we're measuring everything that we can measure from the slope of the hillside and the aspect of that hillside to what plant species are there and in what densities and numbers they're there um we're measuring uh leaf litter depth which sounds crazy but it's actually really important to the ecology of the Swainson's warbler because um, if you look at a Swainson's warbler, they have a gigantic bill on the end of their head. In comparison to the other warblers, they have the largest bill of all. And what they use that for is to f they use their large bill to flip over leaves and pieces of sticks and stuff. So things like soil characteristics are actually important even so we look into those um tree heights understory height and understory presence i mean i won't go through it all but we measure a lot it typically takes us a minimum of 45 minutes to measure one of our vegetation plots and if we're in a difficult area like a really thick rhododendron thicket it's not unheard of to spend two hours there mm -hmm. so um that being said now the problem is going to be looking at that data and determining um, how important all these features are and also trying to take in consideration that a lot of these factors may be um, like correlated and things like that. When you're getting ready to defend your research, um, when are you planning on doing that? I'm hoping to defend at the end of next semester. So. Um, the end of the spring semester. Is there anything you're hoping to do in the future with this research? You know, I think that this research in particular is very special in that regard. So, you know, we have our individual goals for what we want to do for this research and for this species. And those goals in general are very good starting points for, you know, a lot of other projects and a lot of other management decisions because as of right now you know the Swainson's Warbler is listed in Tennessee as in need of management by TWRA um, and I think a large part of that is because we have a lack of data for the species you know I mentioned a lack of studies earlier and in general um, the data for them looks pretty crazy so, you know, if you look at things like the Breeding Bird Survey or um, Partners in Flight, the population for the Swainson's Warbler is recorded as really low. It's like the second or third lowest warbler population like worldwide out of all of our North American warblers. But they're also predicting like massive population growth and these things just don't line up perfectly. So what I'm hoping is that for the first time we'll really have a good idea of what the population level is in the Appalachian Mountains. 
And if we can do that, um, if we can predict the population in the southern Appalachians, I feel like that is a huge part of the population that's not been accounted for. And it's really going to give um, TWRA a better idea of what needs to be happening management-wise. But then on that on that track, you know, if there you know there's a main question of okay, the Swainson warbler is in need of management. How do you manage for Swainson's warbler? Currently, there's no data on how to do that in the Appalachian Mountains because there's been no habitat work done. So it's like oh. If your objective is to manage for them, how are you going to do that? And this study should lay out pretty plainly how to do that. Because if you're aiming for something like high stem density for Swainson's warblers, well, we know how to do that, but you need to know to do it. And if high stem density isn't that, but you need maybe a lower stem density, but larger shrub species, we would know how to achieve that, but we need to have the starting point. So I think my work in particular, you know, I, I hope that it'll be able to be used in that way as kind of the preliminary assessment of the warbler here in Tennessee. And it should lead to more informed management decisions and more targeted studies in the future where mine, I guess, could be considered rather broad. Is there anything else about this research that you want to say? I've, I've really enjoyed it. I, you know, I've really come to this. It's kind of funny because, you know, there's all sorts of amazing bird species out there that are colorful. And I always, you know, other grad students stuff will joke with me that I picked really the brownest, most boring of all of them. <laughs> but for some reason, this is the one that really beat my interest. And I'm just super glad I've got to work with them. I appreciate everyone that's helped me with that. Um, Dr. Bueller for leading me along, people who have uh, supported this project, TWRA, uh, the Forest Service, or, and local organizations like the uh, Tennessee Ornithological Society and the Knoxville chapter of the Tennessee Ornithological Society. Oh, I uh, definitely want to take every opportunity I can to thank them. Um, and, you know, I hope that people will look at this project in the future and really use it. And I hope other people will use it to research the Swainson's Warbler or maybe take it as an inspiration to research other cryptic and difficult species like the Swainson's Warbler. I guess that would be my main takeaway is that, you know, these, you know, they're really fascinating. So. Alright, well, those are all my questions. Thank you so much for joining me on this month's Step Outside podcast. Yeah, it's happy to be here. Thanks for having me.